And indeed, he, he who has ears, let him hear what it is that the Lord would have to say to us. And uh, Julia, thank you for reading so well. Uh, it was quite, long, uh, quite a long section of Scripture, but uh, you did very well. And uh, it's also a section of Scripture which should make us think very, very carefully. It's one that we can't just skip over and, uh, and, and move away from quickly. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, so what is the link between our series from Acts chapter 2? I was thinking of asking uh, uh, Julia to read that section as well, but we've read it for the last three or four weeks anyway, so by now you should be able to uh, quote it off by, hand, by heart. Um, Acts chapter 2 verse 47, though, says, And the Lord added to the church daily all of those who were coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And obviously it must have been an incredibly exciting time. Uh, there's this occasion when 3,000 people have come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only have they come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, but they've been obedient and they've been baptized. And then we're told that they become members or part of the body of Christ or the church, if you like. Sometimes we use these terms interconnectedly. But when we here talk about the church, we're referring to the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's plenty of other people that talk about the church in many ways. They talk about it as big cathedrals, or they talk about it as a little country chapel. But what they're referring to is the building. They're referring to the pews inside it. They're referring uh, to the furnishings that are contained in it. They're referring to the fact that they have gone to that church or to that cathedral for many, many decades, perhaps the whole of their lives, and they want the next generation to come along and to do the same thing. But what they're talking about in that particular case is not what is being referred to in Acts chapter 2, that when the 3,000 came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, they didn't just join going to some building with a group of other people and engaging in certain activities with a group of other people. What they did was to become part of the body of Christ. It didn't matter if they didn't have a building at that time because what was important was that each of these living stones was being built up into a church which was going to spread around the whole world, set the world on fire, change the date system, alter everything in society because that was the power of the Holy Spirit working in the lives of these individuals. It was surely a joyous occasion, people being saved. And that's one of the things that excites us when we see people come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, there's a sense of relief on our part because we see somebody who is heading towards destruction, heading towards hell, being saved and being brought into the kingdom of God. They're being made part of this beautiful kingdom. And so our hearts absolutely rejoice in that. People being saved, miracles taking place, because the greatest miracle, of course, is a heart that is changed from one which is focused upon the world, focused upon the evil that is in the world, and suddenly it changes and it's focused upon the Lord Jesus. I wonder if we can put the next uh, slide up, please. So the picture that we looked at last week, just by way of reminders, is to try and understand that the concept of there being three different circles, I am one little circle on my own, and then the church is another circle and the world is another circle, that isn't how the Bible talks about it. So we discover that me or you or I are there in the middle because that's where it all starts. We begin with a personal experience of meeting the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the things that that uh, causes us to do is to recognize our sin. We suddenly see who we really are and we begin to understand who Jesus is. So right in the beginning is the middle or in the middle is the beginning of everything. And then we discover that we are placed into the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is an imperative. 
As we spoke of last week, there are people who talk about, well, I go to church. And I'm not interested in people who go to church, really. I mean, I say that graciously. What we are looking for, though, is people who belong to a church. And the difference is colossal. Because we're not just people who drift in and out. You know, we come along on a Sunday, the singing's good. I must make a note, uh, the last Sunday of the month, it's really good, <laughs> okay? Uh, or we come along because we want to have a chinwag with our friends. You know, it's the time when we meet them. Perhaps young people, you need to think about this particularly here. Or we come along because we just think that it's the right thing to do. That just maybe at the back of our minds, we've understood that God does want us to do something perhaps special in some way. And so church seems like a good idea. But if that's what you come for, then that is all you will get out of it, is a good chinwag with your friends, is an enjoying time with the music or whatever it is. But will it change you? Will it affect you? Will it transform you? Will it help you to grow and to engage in this incredible process called sanctification? Now, if you belong to a church, then the difference is massive because all of a sudden you don't talk about going to it. You say, that's my church. I belong there. Those people are my family. They're my brothers, they're my sisters, all in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to help them. And there's some that need my help particularly. And they can be a blessing to me. So I'm part of this. And then during the week we meet, during the week we do other things. And sometimes I phone them up, sometimes I send them emails, sometimes I send them text messages, whatever it is, to be an encouragement to them and to help in all the things that are going on. And then suddenly this great body, which is called the church, We see the power of it as it goes out into the world and it proclaims the gospel and it encourages other people to want to come because we discover here that the church has its impact into the world around us. The church that is alive with people who are alive cannot help but be infective in terms of the way the power of the Holy Spirit works in us to the world around us. If the church was taken out of the world today, the salt would be removed, the light would be removed. Now, those of us who managed to make it to uh, Thursday Bible study, Julia, what was one of the comparisons that we had? It was between light and darkness. Well done. Okay, you were worried for a moment. Between the light and the dark, and we used the example that if you've ever been taken into one of those underground caves um, in Somerset, where I come from, where cheddar is made, cheddar cheese, They store it in caves under the ground and you can go down. It's quite a smelly experience, but you can go down and see all these cheeses that are kept in these these caves. And then the guy says, do you want to see what real darkness is? And he flicks the light off and you cannot see your hand that close. You can't see anything, absolutely nothing, not a flicker. And then he lights his cigarette lighter and the tiniest of flames fills the whole cavern. Because light and darkness cannot mix. I'm going to say that again. Light and darkness just cannot mix. But sadly, the church is weak today because we've convinced ourselves that light and darkness can mix. And it can't. And the Bible makes it very clear that we can't do that. So that's what we see in terms of the correct model. It isn't a case that we drift into the world, that we drift into the church, and then we drift out again, and then we do our own thing at home. But this is how we should (coughs) excuse me, (coughs) function and operate. Just to remind you that our salvation is intimate. It's about relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not about religion. It's not about 
following rules and regulations. It's about following the Savior and learning from Him. And then suddenly as we begin to learn from Him, our natural inclination is that we become discerning as to what we should be doing in our lives and what we shouldn't be doing. Because light and darkness doesn't mix. Suddenly as the Holy Spirit works within us, We know that there are things that we can't be involved in, we shouldn't be involved in, we can't do. There are things that we don't say to other people. We refrain from being a stumbling block to others. Because now we're growing and we're discovering as the Holy Spirit works within us just how important these things are. But it begins by a personal encounter with Jesus. It begins by your heart being changed, my heart being changed. It begins by Jesus revealing to us what he has done for us, and what we are like. It begins by him revealing our real and true personalities. Last week we then saw that through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And I think that's one of the things that uh, we haven't uh, appreciated as much as we have. We are not saved just by having our sins taken away upon Christ on the cross. Now obviously it's vital but it isn't, it isn't sufficient. We are saved when the Holy Spirit lives within us. When we have our sins taken, we repent of our sin, and then we are marked and sealed as the Holy Spirit moves in. And that means, explains why we have to be so careful, because when you do something, go somewhere, you're taking Jesus with you. And you've got to be careful. You've got to be careful. Could we put the, the, uh, the next slide up, please? So <clears throat> I tried to uh, explain a bit more about the fact that I said last week that some of the arrows work the wrong way as well. So what I've tried to do here, first of all, is that we'll read this verse. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Notice the word mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So our minds are vital. But the problem that we see today is that the goalposts seem to be shifting. And we discover that when we begin to look at the picture now, what we're supposed to be is that we are in the church and the church makes an impact on the world. But all too often we're discovering that it's working the wrong way and that the world is beginning to make an impact on the church and the world is beginning to make an impact on us. And so we discover that one of the biggest problems for all of us today is our inability to resist conforming to the world. Now, is it any wonder? I mean, let's just analyze it for a moment. Just think about the pressures that people are under. We'll talk about our young people for the moment. The way that social media is now controlling everything. First thing they get up in the morning is not to say good morning or have breakfast. It's to see what their phone says. It's to see what's on the computer. It's to try and determine what is going on and what is taking place in their lives. And then this conduit from the world is opened. And it's like a vast highway and it's just hurling filth of all different descriptions at them. And they're young and they have to try and be discerning to say no. Do you know how hard it is to say no? 
And the church, and our church hasn't helped some as we should have. Because you have to be strong to say no. And we can only say no as the Holy Spirit enables us to see that we're not to conform. God's word says do not conform. But members, people, believers, and fellowships even, churches, begin to conform to the standards of this world. In other words, if an individual throws open the doors of their heart, Satan won't hesitate but to rush in. Because if your defenses are down, the enemy always does that. In a war situation... If the defenses for the city have been taken away, if the watchmen are not watching, if the radar switch system has been switched off, the enemy will come and nothing will stop the enemy because they will come straight in. That is the way that it works. And if we do this in our lives, Satan won't hesitate but to come in and he will bring with him the destruction that he is determined to bring. Churches are also guilty of this because we want to conform to the way that the world works. We're prepared to say, well, you know, don't always have to read the Bible, do we, on a Sunday? We can do some other things. Perhaps we won't even bother, you know, it's a bank, it's a, I call them bank holidays, what do you call them here? It's public holidays. It's a public holiday on Monday. Let's have a really exciting time and let everybody just stay home and do what they want or Go water skiing or whatever it is that you do for a, for a public holiday. If we allow Satan in, he comes in. If we allow the influence of the world, then our relationship with God is damaged and broken. And not only the, our relationship, but our ability to make any difference to the world that we have about us. And that includes our families. Now I read you this. This is from uh, an article from CBC, and uh, there's the picture of the guy on the front. I was going to try, I don't know how technically to get that from that to there, and if anybody can help me another day, you're very welcome uh, to do that, but it's entitled, Edmonton Spiritual Leader cha uh, Charged with Four Counts of Sexual Assault. Uh, if there's any young people here and you don't understand something, just talk to your parents afterwards, but we'll not go into too much detail. So this is an article regarding a man called John uh, or, or Johannes de Ruta. I'm sure I didn't say that correctly. And one suspects there's people here who would know how to say it properly. Uh, so this was an article from the 23rd of January. A well-known Edmonton-based spiritual leader has been charged with four counts of sexual assault. Johannes de Ruta, known as John de Ruta, was arrested and charged on Saturday by Edmonton police. Deruta is the leader of a group known as the College of Integrated Philosophy or the Oasis Church, which have been operating in Edmonton for decades. Police allege that Deruta 63 assaulted four people in separate instances between 2017 and 2020. It was reported that the accused informed certain female group members that he was directed by the Holy Spirit to engage in sexual activity with them and that engaging in sexual activity with them would provide them with an opportunity to achieve a state of higher being or spiritual enlightenment. Deruta claims to be the living embodiment of Christ. He claims to have received messages from Jesus. He claims to get spiritual insight that directs and justifies his behavior. 
In 2002, a CBC do uh, news documentary delved into Deruta's past and his ongoing global following. The story reports that Deruta <coughs> began as a pastor in the Lutheran Church before breaking off to start preaching on his own. Eventually, he gave up his job and focused on his followers. Notice his followers. Kent, one of the men who was involved in bringing this report, who was also interviewed in 2002, documentary said, it is not uncommon for male spiritual leaders to make claims to followers that having sex could help advance the followers' own spiritual advancement. So I wanted to read that to you simply to try and help you to understand the fact that the things that we're talking about in the Scriptures are not abstract. They're not 2,000 years ago. They are now. And all the time, things like this are going on and we're seeing around us the fact that Johannes de Ruta allowed the world to come into his heart and into his life. That's all that happened. He was the pastor of a church, a Lutheran church. I have friends in Europe who are Lutherans and they know and love the Lord Jesus. And if you open the door and you allow Satan to come in, he doesn't wait for an invitation. He just comes straight in. And we discover very quickly that everything changes. And that was the result of this particular situation. Someone said to me not so long ago, well, obviously the Apostle Paul didn't have the internet to drag him down and cause um, him to sin and to fail morally. The man went on to justify his addiction to pornography by blaming the internet. Well, the Apostle Paul didn't have the internet. That's absolutely true. But he did have temples with prostitutes in them. Nudity was something which was seen in the empire of the, uh, the Roman Empire. Paganism and all that went with it was rife in society. And so whilst he didn't have the internet to contend with, he had everything that we see and that we face today. But he did not allow his relationship with Christ to be broken. So we can have the next picture, please. He was able to write this, and we'll read it. If you want to read it with me, do so. Do you not know that the unrighteousness, sorry, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor adulterers, nor adult, sorry, idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards will inherit the kingdom of God. So the Apostle Paul states very clearly that this group of people are not going to heaven. Is that what he's saying? Yes. That's what the scripture says. So why is it that when we begin to look around churches today, all of a sudden we start hearing about all these sorts of things going on? All these problems. We hear about the damage that is being done to people, to our young people. And we see that. And we say to ourselves, this is serious. This is the kingdom of God and these people are not in it. And yet we start to look and we talk to people in churches and we discover that churches are full in many cases of people like this. But this is why the next verse is so important. This is why we rejoice. And Darren, if you'd put it up for us, please. 
The next verse, verse 11 says, and such were some of you. Now, doesn't that give you all the encouragement you need? And such were some of you. But notice again the grammar that we have here. And such were some of you. So there's no license to continue the old style of living into the new life that we have. If we really believe that we're in a new creation, then the old has gone. And the new has come. And then we go on and we read it says, but you were washed. Your sin was cleansed. How was it cleansed? Through the work of Christ on the cross. You were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Now we begin to see how wonderful this is. Because the early church went into the pagan world where there was things that you and I can't even begin to imagine that were taking place. And the power of the Holy Spirit changed people's lives. Could you imagine the counseling situation? A man comes in with three or four wives. He's been saved out of a pagan background. Maybe a woman whose one wife of half a dozen is saved. And she has to carry on living in this situation. People that have given sacrifices, temple prostitution and so on. And they come in and they meet face to face the risen Lord Jesus Christ who says, I love you, I've died for you, and the past is the past. It's gone and he says this, I've washed you. And the darkness and the light don't mix anymore. Because the darkness is driven out by the light of Christ. But you were sanctified. But you were justified. Justified. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. But if we conform to the world then the power is gone. If you let sin into your life, you have no defense because you've let the guard down. And suddenly, life becomes intolerable. So we just turn to a verse in Proverbs which should help us to understand the seriousness in one sense to this. Proverbs 28.13 he who covers his sin, she who covers her sin, will not prosper. But whoever confesses and forsakes their sin will have mercy. You see, if you carry on sinning, there are consequences. And sometimes those consequences are so severe that you lose everything. A person who admitted that they were engaging in sexual immorality also confessed to losing all their money, to foolish living, and to unwise choices. You see, when we walk away from God and His unbelievable love and His unbelievable compassion for us and His absolutely unbelievable mercy for us, 
Would you be merciful to yourself when you know what you have been like? Or to others that you know of? And yet God has shown his mercy in vast quantities. And we rejoice in that. So as individuals and as churches, we never conform to the world. And that means that we have to put up defenses to stop. Read Ephesians 6 if you're struggling to know what the shield of faith is. The helmet of salvation. The belt of truth. Again, Bible study on... What was the subject of our Bible study on on Thursday? It was the truth. Okay? And what, what did the Apostle John talk about? He said, lies. Tell me lies. Don't tell me lies. What's the first thing that a Christian does to cover up their sin? We lie about it. We lie to ourselves. We lie to other people around us. And we lie to God. That's what we do. Don't worry, Jude. I won't ask anymore. You, you can relax now. But I'm glad you've been listening. That's tremendous. If anyone else, um, every other Thursday, come to the Bible study. And uh, we, have a, we have a great time. Being conformed to the world pretty well always starts with small consequences on our part. Invariably, Satan targets our personal relationship with the Lord and our personal relationship with others. He's an expert at finding out what our weakness is. And when he finds it, he throws these little darts, and they're small, but they hit the point, and they sting. And he breaks his way in to us. But we have another problem in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ which we face. It's not just the issues that we have from our own personal um, uh, conforming to the world. There's there's another issue which is spoken very clearly of in Scripture. And there's a sense in which the church is damaged from within. And you might think to yourself, well, this this is terrible. How can this happen? But it happens all the time. You see, what takes place is that if an enemy wants to get inside, we send spies. You know, Joshua and the spies went out to spy out the land. Britain used to send spies into Germany. Germany used to send spies into Britain to see what's going on. And all this still happens today. And now we're talking about this wonderful thing, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, these wonderful stones, living stones that have been built together. And suddenly we start to say that there's another problem that's taking place. So next slide, please. <coughs> okay. So uh, what do we have here? Any, anybody want to venture and tell me what's going on? Okay. Dixie. Uh, that's right. This is, this is a wolf Oops, in sheep's clothing. All right. So uh, the scripture that we have here is Matthew 7.15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Johannes de Root. Uh, what do you think he is? He says the Holy Spirit speaks to him. He says he's the embodiment of Jesus. Okay? He says things that the Bible doesn't say. So who is he? He's a wolf in sheep's clothing. Now, don't look around, but there are some here. You look good on the outside, 
but on the inside, now that's a different story. That's a different matter altogether. So we'll explain this. Jesus uh, was speaking in most of the section of Scripture that Julia had read to us. And if you have your Bible, can you please keep it open at Matthew chapter 13. <laughs> Excuse me. <coughs> now, if you know Matthew chapter 13, you'll understand and realize that the whole chapter is made up of a series of uh, parables, stories. The definition of a parable is something that comes alongside. So it's something that helps us to understand the message that is being brought. And Jesus speaks of uh, um, seven main parables, and then he adds an eighth uh, at the end of the chapter. The word parable, as I say, means to come alongside or to cast alongside. It's a story or a comparison that is put alongside something else to help make the lesson clear. Now, it's interesting. Uh, again, I didn't have felt we had time, and I felt sorry for Julia, so I didn't ask her to read the first part. But the first uh, parable that we have here in chapter 13, can someone shout it out for me? What is it? It's the parable of the, of the sower. Okay. And we know this parable very well. It's something that we learnt in Sunday school. It's something that we refer to quite often. And it's one which is, uh, um, it's an interesting account. And it helps us to understand some of the things that are going on as the word of God is proclaimed. So Jesus begins with the parable of the sower. Or perhaps more accurately, we ought to call it the parable of the seed. Because it's the seed, which is the word of God, which is sprinkled on different types of human hearts. Some of them are hard, uh, some of them have got thorns and other things growing up around them, and some of them are good, and the seed sinks in and starts to take root and starts to grow. But notice, out of all of the parables in chapter 13, the first parable, the parable of the seed or the parable of the sower, is the only one that does not begin with the words, the kingdom of heaven is like. Okay? Now, this is important because it helps us to understand clearly who the Lord Jesus Christ is talking to, who our Lord is talking to in that first parable and then in the other parables. Because in the first one, this is the beginning of the sequence, if you like. The seed is being sown. And in some hearts, the seed settles and grows. And in other hearts, it doesn't. And of course, notice what happens when the seed does take root and grow. Even though it says that some of the others, it takes root for a little while and the sun comes out and it shrivels up. But notice the difference. What is it? The seed that takes root and grows and begins to flourish, what does it do? What was that? Bears fruit, said by a farmer, okay? The point is, is that the seed that takes root will bear fruit, okay? So this is the beginning of what we see here, the process, if you like, and, and our Lord has made it very, very clear. Now, as we then move on to the other parables, we discover that Jesus is explaining the course of the gospel in the world. The parable of the sower does not begin with the kingdom of heaven is like this because the parable is describing the, as the kingdom begins in people's lives, and it all begins with the preaching of the word and the planting of the seed. But the remaining seven parables are all about the kingdom of God. And as believers, when we come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we become part of the kingdom of God. Now that means we have to listen 
as believers very carefully to the remaining parables that are held here in the section of Scripture because they are specifically, this is Jesus talking to you and me, specifically. The remaining parables are about the kingdom. <clears throat> and the one that we're going to look at today, and we, if we'd had time, we can look at the others another time. But the one that we're going to look at today, again, is the one Julia read, which is about the wheat and the tares. Now, Satan's number one method of stopping the gospel, um, taking root in people's lives, is to snatch it away. Okay? Before we've grasped it sometimes, Satan comes in and he grabs it and he takes it away from us. And that's the birds on the path as they see the seed that has been brought. And that's his number one. Take our heart, take our minds off of what is going on. It's his uh, way of doing things. But if that approach fails, he has other approaches to try. One is that Satan is an imitator. Satan is not an originator. Only God is an originator and the creator. Only God can create something from nothing. Now, you know, we've got very clever in our society and world today, haven't we? But we still can't create something from nothing. But God can. Satan can't. So what Satan does is ask Darren to put slide seven on. Okay. So what we have here is my attempt to try and explain what I see going on in these parables. And this is what we saw earlier, and this is the point that we uh, really come to a close on in, uh, for this occasion. But what we see here is the big outer circle remains to be the world. And then we have this inner circle, and then this time I've called it Christendom. Now Christendom means sort of like the, the state of Christianity around the world. All right? It includes everybody who would call themselves Christian in one way or another. But within Christendom, if you like, what the parable is saying is that there are the wheat, which is the body of Christ, and I put them as yellow to try and help us to understand that wheat's supposed to be yellow when it's ready to harvest. And then on this side, we have what we call the tares. But notice their location. They are within this central um, uh, circle, this central place. And what the parable is that we have before us is saying, now look, be very careful. Because there are people who appear to be in the kingdom and they shouldn't be and they're not. But they look like they are. And they're there because they're imitators. They're there because they're pretending to be somebody who calls themselves a Christian and a believer, but they're not. They haven't come to faith in Christ, they are false Christians. They are wolves in sheep's clothing. Satan comes along and he plants them in the organization called the church. And notice I use the word organization because the church is not an organization. If you hear of somebody referring to a church structure in an organizational perspective, they have misunderstood what the body of Christ is all about more accurate statement would be the organism because the difference between an organization and an organism is that an organism is what 
It's alive. Okay? It's breathing. It functions. And the church of Jesus Christ is alive. It breathes and the Holy Spirit's breath is pumped into us. We are not an organization. We don't come with that sort of organizational structure. <laughs> I always worry when you go into church and you see one of those big plans on the wall that tells you who's who and what their position is. The church of Jesus Christ is alive. And that is how it is so successful because Christ is the head and it's alive. But Satan comes along and he plants counterfeits in the very midst of the church. In the parable, the field is not the human heart, the field is the world. Here Christ is sowing true believers in various places that they might bear fruit. Remember we spoke about that? A true believer bears fruit. What's your fruit bearing like, guys? Is there any? Do you see any? Does your family see any? Do the friends around you see any? If there isn't, maybe you've got to go back and ask some serious questions. John 12. Um, we haven't time to read it. John 12, uh, 23 to 26 talks about the fact that the wheat has to die before it can grow. And you and I have to die to this old world. If we don't die to this old world, we will never grow. We will never be fruitful. We'll just carry on in the same old way, but trying to do it in a respectable way. Friends, we must be aware of Satan's counterfeits. You see, he has counterfeit Christians who believe a counterfeit gospel, Galatians 1, 6-9. He encourages a counterfeit righteousness, Romans 10, 1-3. And he even has a counterfeit church, Romans, uh, Revelation 2.9. And at the end of the age, he produces a counterfeit Christ. Does that begin to remind you of what we read earlier? John DeRitter. Counterfeit church, counterfeit gospel, counterfeit Christ in that sense. Read all about it in 2 Thessalonians 2.9-12. We have to stay awake to make sure that Satan's servants don't get into this fellowship. Into the true church. Into the church of Christ. Because when they do, they do their best to destroy it. And church after church around the world, and in Canada for example, they've been allowed in. And they start to destroy the church. And they do it by pretending to be somebody they are not. And the door is opened up. And in they come. Sometimes we get on to high horses about various issues. COVID perhaps, something like that. And all of a sudden you're worshipping COVID. Or the fight against it. Friends, we have to beware of Satan's counterfeits. We've got to stay awake. We've got to make sure that Satan's servants don't get into the fellowship. It is when God's people are sleeping, because what did the parable tell us? Whilst the servants were asleep, somebody came along and sowed the tares. And if we're sleeping... That's exactly what happens. 
even to us. And the tares are brought in. Now I just want you to be reminded of the fact that our task is not, the parable tells us this, our task is not to sniff out the counterfeits. Don't actually have to do that, to be honest. Because, and this might hurt some of you, it's painfully obvious to us. Now, it may be we've not said anything. But it's painfully obvious. You see, the task that we have is not to sniff out the counterfeits. We are not detectives. We're evangelists. We're proclaimers. We proclaim the gospel. And that's what we have to fix our eyes and our minds and our hearts on doing, which is what Christ has asked us to do. We must sow the word of God. And as the seed is sown and we see fruit coming from it, we are to encourage that. What will happen to the tares? The parable tells us. And if you're a tear here, you need to look at this last part because they're bundled up at the end of the time and thrown into the fire. So the last slide, please, Darren. Here it is. Okay. Uh, I'm sorry that it's so blurry. If anyone can tell me how to make pictures not blurry, I'd be grateful as well. Um, but apparently, this is, uh, it tears look like identical to wheat. So the reality is, is that the, the, the Lord Jesus chose wheat and tares deliberately here because you can't tell them apart at a, at a glance. Okay? When they're growing, first of all, and the little green shoots come out of the ground, can't spot the difference at all. How are you going to pull out the right ones? And all the way through, they look good. They sound good. They say the right things. They do the right things. Well, in front of you, they do. And, and it's easy to think that we've got communion, fellowship with them. But they're counterfeit. And they've been planted in the church to damage the witness and the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ and to cause people to stumble and to fall and to create problems and to create difficulties. Are you aware that there are churches now today almost where nobody is saved? They simply run on the tradition that has been placed from the past and nobody asks any questions because as long as it's done right we hope God will accept us and it's not that that brings us into the kingdom of heaven it's that we've been washed in the blood of the saviour and that's what some of us were. But now, this is what we are. And to 
God and to our Savior, we're beautiful. I can't understand it. But we are. Because we've been washed in the blood of Christ. But never let darkness and light mix. Because it can't. And we don't do that. May the Lord.